0: Hello, welcome to the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter podcast. My name is Tony Heil, the Director of Communications and Public Policy here at the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia Chapter. Uh, if you've been listening to our podcast on iTunes, searching at ALS Philadelphia, you've heard from a lot of people, uh, caregivers, people with ALS, uh, legislators, and family members, um, and and experts in research, and also some people who are working on fundraising. Today, we're going to be talking to a few of those people. We're going to be talking to um, someone you've heard before, Donna Cleary, who is involved in some of our giving and charitable gifts. Um, well, all of our gifts are charitable, I guess. Uh, we're going to be talking to um, Andrew Geronimo, who has a great first name, because the same name as my son, uh, and he's doing some really amazing work on brain-computer interface, which you could have heard in a previous podcast with Melanie Freed Oaken. And then we're also going to be talking to my good friend Debbie Eide um, whose, uh, husband Dave ID passed away from ALS one year ago this month. Well, not this month, but one year ago. Uh, and Dave is, um, someone who is very close to all of us that are in this room, including myself. Um, so I just want to start off before we do this interview, um, to say a few words on my end about Dave. I don't remember the exact time that I met Dave. It was, I think through advocacy, but He was one that did everything possible, and uh, it's really an inspiration to me, uh, to a lot of other people, and we're here today at Hershey Medical Center, not so much to do this podcast, so it's something we're going to be doing for the next few minutes, but it's also to celebrate Dave's life through a named fund um, that's going to be helping with patient services. Dave was a tremendous advocate in every sense of the word. He came to Advocacy Days in Harrisburg, and Uh, DC and met with everybody and always made a big impression Um, he would message me as a communication director and say I want to do a news story pretty much every other day it seemed like so uh, and anywhere he could go and it's Dave's the kind of person that I think we all kind of want to be ALS or not so the reason we're here today is not just to for me to talk about Dave for a while because I could do that on my own but to talk about uh, this name fund and to celebrate his life and what we're doing next with patient care. So, um, Debbie, um, do you want to talk about why we're here today and talking about Dave?
1: Okay. Yeah. I saw this, um, donation as a way to give back to all the people that have helped us along this journey of this disease, the clinic here at Hershey and the ALS foundation and also the VA have been amazing to us. Um, I also uh, specified that the the donation be used for patient care because this is such a changing disease and uh, your needs are constantly changing, and for people who don't have the resources, um, I just wanted it to be used for some of those people. Um, My husband lost his voice very early in the disease, and... You know, without the, the iPad that he had and the eye gaze system, um, it would have been almost impossible for him to communicate. So I'm just thankful for all the things that were available to us and want to try to help other people.
0: Uh, we appreciate it. I think everyone with ALS or ALS family appreciates what you're doing today, what Dave has done. Um, and I, I'm just going to guess, I think the fact that he lost his voice to ALS with a ball bar form of ALS really made it more important for him to speak up every way he could, kind of reinforce that part of him. Was that really part of Dave, wanting to shout from the rooftops in every kind of way he could?
1: Yes, every opportunity that he had. He wanted to talk about ALS and finding a cure and uh, did a lot of uh, clinical trials and whatever he could do to just further the cause for a cure for this horrible disease.
0: And Dave was, I I know he, he did music, I got to see some of his videos from when he was healthier, and yeah. he posted those on Facebook a lot. Um, so he was not someone that was a quiet man, no matter no. what his voice did, right?
1: No, no. He was always doing something, and uh, yeah, he had just learned to play guitar and sing about four or five years before he got the disease, so um, yeah, he sang as long as he could.
0: And I know, I guess it's a lesson for all of us that you know he, he didn't start singing and doing instruments early in life then, right? Something right. that anyone that's listening, if you have something you want to do, take advantage of whatever time you can. Don't right. worry that you're too old or or too young, whatever. Just, you know, try whatever you can. Uh, so we're here for the the Dave Eide Tribute Fund. Uh, so Donna, you're the annual giving manager, the AGM. Um, yes. What does, what's a tribute fund? What is it just a piece of paper or what, what's more than that?
2: Well, a tribute fund is a way for um a family to give back and at the same time um honor their loved one who struggled with ALS and um I was very happy to hear um Debbie was will, was willing to do a, a named or a tribute fund. And I had the opportunity to meet Dave um a couple times. Um I didn't know him really well, but the few times that I got to know him it was it was enjoyable uh um, conversations. And in fact, uh, shortly, um, before Dave passed away, cause, um, he is a veteran and since veterans are twice as likely to get ALS, we were doing, um, we wanted to write a story about Dave and, and his, um, story about being a veteran and ALS. And he was very willing to help us with that. And, uh, um, we appreciated that. So it, it's a, it was, he's just a great guy and, I met him at the walks with Debbie, and um, they were always ready to give back in any way that they could. But the tribute fund is is a donation of $10,000, and it can be um, paid up front or within three years. And it will. This particular gift is going to help uh, patient care. So, um, if anyone is interested in getting information about giving back that way, they can just email me at, at org. I'll be happy to uh, work with you on that. But um, it is. It will be commemorated today. We're going to have a little reception to say thank you. And, and there'll be cake. And there'll be cake. David and, alone and cake. Yep. David cake. <laughs> and yes. a, Debbie's um, son and grandchildren are going to be with us today to celebrate. And there is a plaque in the Hershey Clinic, and there is also one in the um, Ambler office that... Uh, Commemorates this fund so that everybody can see it. So we are very grateful for that. Anna. And and I think it's going to
0: be nice for us, you and me, working at the in our Ambler office because we don't see the Hershey families as much um, because well we're not there right um, we're not here as often and you know it's nice to see those names. We wish that we didn't see them for that reason necessarily, but to remember them every time we walk in the room Absolutely. and know that. Um, so we'll talk to Andrew in a few minutes and. But before I do that, Debbie, I know that Dave was a veteran, like Donna talked about. Uh, My grandfather was also a veteran who lost his life to ALS. Um, And Dave spoke often about how he got good care because he was a veteran. Um, I think that there's some good VA people around here that helped him out and made sure he got services. And it seemed like that was an impetus to him to help others. He knew he was getting a lot and that he wanted to make sure other people got as much as he was able to get. Was that kind of his spirit?
1: Yes, that's correct. Yeah, we use the Lebanon VA, and um, because twice as many people are likely to get ALS when they're veterans, it's considered a service-related disease, Mm -hmm. so almost everything, every need that we had was covered through the VA, and that's why we felt so fortunate, but there's not, not everybody, you know, has that opportunity.
0: And we like to toot our own horn about the ALS Association Greater Philadelphia chapter um, but we really do want to send a thank you to the Lebanon VA and to all those other people at the VA that are helping people with ALS. Um, and I think people like Dave who've shared their experiences with them have made that care better. Mm-hmm. So, um, so we appreciate that. And then, so the reason we're also here today is Dave's contributions through clinical trials. You said he did a lot of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, he, he did as many as he could, uh the maxillotine and the the brain wave one with Andrew here. hmm and then when he wasn't involved or couldn't find a clinical trial here to be involved in, he tried other alternate therapies. So he tried a lot of different things.
0: He has done more than my zero clinical trials I've ever been a part of. So. And, and there's some that I could have for other diseases. My mother has MS. I saw one where you, if you're a family member, you can get involved in stuff. And um, So we have too many diseases in my family. We should do something about that. <laughs> So, but the one you said, he got involved in brain-computer interface, and there's a famous picture, famous to me, in our office of Dave wearing the hat, and he's talking to you, Andrew. Yeah. So I remember that day very well. Good. It was our it was our screening
3: session. We weren't actually doing a brain computer interface recording that day. He was so eager to participate, he made me put the cap on him. Nothing was plugged in if you look at that picture. (laughs) Nothing's plugged into anything. He's just put this cap on me, we're gonna put this on right now.
1: And he was very adamant about getting published. In any way that he could. He was you know, published maybe. before I was, for sure. <laughs> anything, in the, any way that he could get in
3: the local effort of effort newspaper. But
0: how smart is that? That's a, that's. Uh, I don't know that many other people we know would have done that. They would have said, "Okay, we'll come back, and we'll do it." And he's like, "Look, there's an opportunity here. Mm-hmm. Let's take
3: it." Yeah. He was a, a researcher's dream, mm-hmm. and he was so eager to participate, and he was put his whole heart into it when he did it. That you know. It really did affect things for the positive and how the outcomes of that study turned out.
0: So Uh, what was that study he was doing? He
3: was participating in a two-part study. One of them, the first part was looking at What ALS patients perceive of, think of, and would like to change about these technologies I'm developing, these Mm. brain-computer interface technologies. So can it help them achieve their goals in terms of communication or mobility? What don't they really like about it? Is the CAP really something that will throw people off? They'll never want to go out in public with it, things like that. Um, So we got to know a little bit more about what real patients with the disease, not college students, which is what most of these research trials are done on, what patients with ALS think of these devices and whether they'd actually ever want to use one.
0: And before you go on the next part, I think that is a really underappreciated component of what you and other researchers do is understanding the the patient's perspective as a human being instead of just saying, oh, well, medically this works and throw it out there.
3: Yeah. So what we found from that study... we kind of expected what we saw. We were measuring cognitive and behavioral impairments that are sometimes associated with mm-hmm. ALS as well. And we saw that those who have certain behavioral impairments associated with the disease often are less likely to want to use it. And we find that this is the case with most assistive technologies. Um, but for, it didn't matter for those who were cognitively or behaviorally intact – it didn't matter whether they were in the early or late stages of the disease. They were all pretty much interested in using this device. Whether they'd, re- whether they'd have something implanted in their head. Do you remember that question mm-hmm. where I asked, do you want something implanted in your head to have this brain commun- brain-computer interface work? People weren't as, cheer- uh, as onto that idea as they thought they yeah. would be. But for the most part, people were very accepting of the technology, mm-hmm. um, with the exception of those psychological um,
0: domains we mm-hmm. talked about. So they knew that they would be comfortable with it. And so what happens next?
3: So for this, in, in the second part, of, this is all research now. So I wasn't sending anyone home with these devices. I really wanted to know if people wanted to use them. And the second part was how well they could use them. Mm-hmm. So like I said, most of the research, with the exception of a few people, um, most research is done in healthy individuals for these. And they say, wow, a, a 21-year-old student can use this technology to move a cursor on the screen. Um, and we don't really know if that's the case with someone who has a neurodegenerative disease. Um, so the second part of the study was looking at what factors of the disease contributed to how well they could use this device in practice. And again, it didn't come down to f- physical function. People who were at very advanced stages could use it just as well as people who were just diagnosed a month ago. Um, but the uh, determining factors seemed to be um, the cognitive state of that individual as well. If there was any associated cognitive impairment, um, with the, the disorder, then they were less likely to be able to use the two types of BCIs I was having them use.
0: Now I've talked to people at Hershey Medical Center, from Dr. Connor to Sue Wolf and, and Dr. Simmons. Um, do you think that this technology, you help you understand how people can use the technology? Do you think it also helps people understand the disease? Because it sounds interesting to me that now you know that they're able to use this. At different levels of their progression, maybe. Yeah,
3: that's a good question. I mean, as far oh, good. as right as down. far as what we can learn about the disease from this technology, I use EEG in my studies, which you saw, which is I'm recording the scalp at the scalp level. I'm taking electrodes and putting them on the scalp and mm-hmm. I'm recording the electrical potentials of the brain, not individual neurons because those are really deep and tiny and in there, but overall brain activity. And you can tell certain things about. What differs in a patient with a neurodegenerative disorder versus a healthy control, which is one thing we looked at. In some of the signals we looked at, there was a shift in where these signals were located or the timing was slightly different. So yeah, there are still lots of things we can learn Mm -hmm. about ALS from EEG technology, which Mm -hmm. is, um, although it's not widely used as a diagnostic tool, there's certain things we can learn about this. Although... There's more research put into, you know, MRI and things
0: like that. It's kind of like we can learn... Uh, they learned that there was a little bit of water on Mars now. They can learn how much water there was on Mars. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just throwing Mars out there to stay relevant. In the, uh, <laughs> um, so you, it's like it looked like a shower cap on his head with a lot of things on there. It did. Um, and there's...
3: Yeah, that's what I used. We're, we're moving... Towards other things now, we're trying to make it as easy as possible to use this system. So Mm -hmm. yeah, he had basically a shower cap with holes in it, and I was screwing these electrodes into it. Mm -hmm. Um, The technology is advancing fairly rapidly for this, and even the ALS Association is getting behind this. I think today they're announcing a funding mechanism for developing real prototypes for these assistive communication technologies, which will be, you know... Able to be get out there within the next few years, and and and. I just saw an email from the National ALS
0: Association about assistive technology grants before I came out here. Yeah, I didn't, I, I can't get into all the detail about it because I don't. I can't open it right this I minute. can't
3: either. I haven't okay. read the email yet. I just was kind of in the loop, so I kind of knew it was going to happen.
0: But so, we're all very excited. Yes. Yeah,
3: so um, so it's something that. People are obviously thinking about these assistive communication technologies, Mm -hmm. and brain-computer interface is one of them. The iPad apps are another huge one, which I saw Dave used a lot of, and Mm -hmm. he really successfully used those, Um, and that's how he communicated with me primarily, I Mm -hmm. think. Um, I didn't get to see Dave when he was
0: at the point of using the eye gaze, but I'm sure he excelled at that as well. (laughs) Um, And uh, For people who are listening and want to know more about some of those iPad apps, uh, you can go on our YouTube page, youtube.com slash ALS Philadelphia, um, and then we'll have a site on our website too. Um, Elisa Brownlee at our chapter has um, put together a video about some really good communication apps on the iPad, how you can use them and get them, and some of the benefits of both. Um, so it's this. It, we saw the cap that was on him and the electrodes. What makes you as a researcher think that this is something that would work? Not that, but just like reading electrodes in someone's head. Like, there's a basic point before you get to designing something, right? So Why did I think this would work? Is that you were just... I mean, I'm, I'm not just the saying, first person to try it. I know you're not it, the first person, sure, but... Like, um, but uh, where, where people go,
3: you know what, we should try this. There's, there's a need for it. Mm-hmm. It's not a huge need, but there's a need for it. I mean, for people who start losing control of their eye gaze systems, they're out of options at that point. Yeah. Um, and there's there's something that's needed for this, albeit small population of people, there needs to be a way for them to communicate. Mm-hmm. And this... Um, brain-computer interface is going to be the next option for that once we get it to work in those individuals, which still hasn't been clearly demonstrated yet.
0: But there's a point where I mean, obviously there's a need but there's, I mean, with an iPad, the the iPads came later to some of the research on this stuff is, you know, you can tell, oh, someone should be able to do this and that. Um, And even with an eye gaze, it's like someone can do that. What makes someone think, oh, we should have a device that reads your mind? (laughs) <laughs> which isn't exactly what it does. Yeah, well, it's
3: still, it's still something that's yeah, quite it. intact um, for the most part in ALS. Although I, although all, all sorts of other muscle control may go, the brain is still there and it's still functioning, which is one of the worst parts mm-hmm. about the disease. Um, but for the most part, it's, everything's going on. And uh-huh. if we can interpret those signals up in the, those regions where you're having intentional thoughts, hopefully we can translate them into usable actions with this type of system.
0: And so how do you figure out that a device would be able to do that? Like um, like I there's know a vacuum a of, cleaner is able to pick yeah, up our dirt.
3: There's a lot of work background in the field of mm-hmm. biofeedback and neurophysiology which dealt with these signals that we can read from the brain which are intentionally modulated. One which is the easiest to explain, I think, is the concept of motor imagery. If I were to squeeze my left hand right now, I'd get changes in the frequency content of the signals in the other hemisphere, the right hemisphere of mm-hmm. my brain. Now the interesting thing about this is if I were to just think about that action as well, not squeeze my hand at all, but just think about the action of squeezing my left hand, we'd get those same changes over in the right hemisphere of the brain. So if I'm recording signals in right now, the right? left <laughs> and right hemisphere of the brain, um, I can tell what that person is, which arm that person is thinking about squeezing based on which hemisphere I see these changes. Hmm. So that's one example of something that someone saw in that occurs in the brain, someone who wasn't a brain-computer interface researcher. But somewhere along the 1980s, someone thought to apply this to maybe getting some sort of biofeedback system to the users. Um,
0: and um, I was just, again, talking with Elisa Brownlee, putting together some videos, which Donna was in. She helped Star in. Um, so, since Dave wasn't able to help out, we are like, well, what is Donna? Um, and... She was talking about basic communication often comes down to yes, no, and maybe. And I think... So everyone, that would be a perfect... So being able to use your brain to just be able to do yes or no. For someone
3: who can reliably send to the computer yes or no based on whether they're activating their left or right hemisphere, that would be immensely useful to them.
0: And so, you know, we're right, right now, maybe in the future, we can't um, paint a picture with our brain... And maybe people, we,
3: people do that
0: well they're wrong <laughs> <laughs> I'm simple. how do they do that you know
3: it's it's complicated, but it, just as I can say yes or no, I could control a cursor to move left right right mm-hmm. and if I can make it move left right, I can use my tongue and my feet imaginations to make it go up and down mm-hmm. so you can imagine you have three dimensional control on a screen to move a cursor to paint on there if you mm-hmm. want, um, which people have done
0: Wow so it's I, I'm almost like a computer. I'm, we're looking at one now, it's telling how loud our voices are, what you know how to connect to a word document, but it's all ones and zeros on the background like they're simple, it gets mm-hmm. more complicated. Mm-hmm. so you can do a lot of complicated tasks with possibly a brain computer interface, yeah um by being able it being able to read simple things,
3: yeah, and uh, you know, I'm not a computer scientist, so I have a lot of difficulty do making it do any task, but yeah, with enough smart people who have enough software knowledge, they'd be able to translate those brain signals into usable things like controlling a robotic arm or controlling a virtual keyboard or something like that.
2: Would it be able to do something like, I remember hearing a patient family member tell me that it took them an hour or so to, to figure out that the, the patient had an itch on their nose. Mm-hmm. It, would that be something that would be able to...
3: Well, that's a kind of specific thing they'd be telling you, right? So there's a different type of brain-computer interface, which is more ideally suited for that. And you can kind of imagine the interface is an eye gaze interface. Um, they're presented with a bunch of tiles on the screen, one of them which might say, I have an itch on my nose or something like right. that. Um, this brain-computer interface doesn't work on eye gaze. It works on what's called the P300 potential you'd be flashing each of those icons on the screen in a random pattern. And you probably remember this, Mm Debbie. But depending on which one the user's focusing on, you've got to be directing your focus to the I've got an itch on my nose icon. And when that's flashed, you'll get a P300 potential in the back of your brain here. For none of the other flashes, you get that. But based on whichever icon that's flashing evokes this potential, we can determine, oh, they're looking at the I've got an itch on my nose icon. Let's activate that.
0: Let's scratch right. their nose. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're at that stage of being able to do it. Obviously, if you're able to figure out that that's how you can make that work, you're able to, in the years ahead, make that a lot more complicated from a rudimentary kind of language to a much more complex one.
3: Yeah. There's going to be – limit. there's the current limitations with this technology or the speed. With mm-hmm. that P300 potential, you've got to flash it a few times. You've got to do it, you know, 10 times and average everything together. So mm-hmm. it takes – to say I've got an inch in my nose might take – 20 seconds to do
1: but still you're communicating without that
3: the big right, right. Hour, the big right? advances the will amazing. be in speed yeah. i think um mm-hmm. hopefully with uh new types of recording devices and new types of processing technologies um but we've got the capability now to give a whole bunch of commands because as i just described you can have that eye gaze like interface which you're activating in the way we mm-hmm. do with the flashing letters, or the flashing grid icons. And you were talking about a lot of icons. How many icons might that be in, like, a flashing I use 36. I just do an alphabet. But you could do icons like you do which... So that's the letters and the numbers. Yeah, it has all the letters of the alphabet and a few numbers. But you could easily make that into... You could use it with the eye gaze interface which i don't know how many it has but 60 70 80 icons on there
0: so ancient egyptians can possibly use this with hieroglyphics
3: <laughs> yeah. you could do whatever
0: language you want on there yeah so um now you're talking about communication obviously which is important here but communication is a two-way street so when you're doing this do you work with people like debbie when you're talking to someone like dave about how they would communicate and make sure that they could obviously he's going to be doing his own thing if he was mm-hmm. using that but that someone like Debbie is able to present information or glean information from him in an appropriate way.
3: Yeah, I don't know. I've never had a problem with you know prompting people, asking them a question, and they're responding with this mm-hmm. P300 interface, for example. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good. Do you think it that, was a pretty effective way to do it? Yeah.
0: So maybe it might be even easier in the long run to use than some other devices because some of them. Uh, you, you know very well that when you're trying to use different communication devices, a lot of it was training training you to be able to understand, understand. be patient. Like I'm sure, that, there's, I'm no,
1: sure there's no emotion in that. You know, it mm-hmm. does speak the words that he types, but, you know, there's no emotion. So sometimes you have to just figure out mm-hmm. right to what he meant by that because statement could mean different things.
0: Sarcasm and humor is hard to translate in that way and yeah. other kinds of emotions. Yeah. So it's like when you're typing an email and, or, or even when I just talk to Donna and I say something and I have to let her know that I was kidding. Because, <laughs> like, how did you believe me? Oh,
2: that wasn't necessary. No. <laughs> so, well, you're not the only one, but you're
0: here. Um, so, what, so we know that Dave was part of those kind of studies to see what would be the comfort level. What's kind of next from what he could do? Like, What did you learn from that in terms of what you can do next as a researcher?
3: Well, our group was kind of one of the first to show that this, these psychological impairments that can sometimes happen in ALS uh-huh. really do affect how well people can use them, and we'll be following that up with another study starting this Monday in the mm-hmm. clinic. Um, and, and here at the Hershey um, so Medical Center. Here at the Hershey Medical
0: Center. Which I um, mean, I just want to point out there that there's this really amazing research happening locally at yes, Hershey Medical Center. Yes. It's terrific.
3: Um, and uh, now that I'm here, um, I, I did this research I just talked about as a graduate student um, mm-hmm. at Penn State. And now I'm a faculty member here at uh, the Medical Center at the College of Medicine, Penn State's College of Medicine. And um, we're trying to do lots of different things here. We're going to be collaborating with a team from Univers- Penn State's University Park to do a small smart wheelchair project where they'll be controlling... A wheelchair that has these active guidance systems on it, hopefully using their brain signals as well. We're going to have to see how that goes. Wait, 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 wait. All right. See, this is kind of neat, right? just like,
0: oh, so they're just going to be moving a wheelchair with their brains. Like, it's no so big deal. So, that's amazing. Well, that's not yeah. the smart part. The smart
3: part is what they've done up at University Park with these wheelchairs. Wheelchairs that can get you to a destination without you controlling it. You tell it where to go. Easy to do for a BCI. And it gets you there. It avoids obstacles and people and doors and all those things. It just gets wow. you there. Um, So this is going to be like all those autonomous cars you're seeing uh, the news reports about. There's no reason we can't have autonomous wheelchairs as well, which would be just as successful.
0: I I think, you know, that, that something you said there is important to me with research. And I think with the kind of mentality that you and others here have is that well, if you can do that, there's no reason we can't do this, right? Is that kind of how you think about it? It's like, kind of the whole field of BCI.
3: Yeah, yeah, right there. Just, well, we can do this. Why
0: can't we apply it to this very useful situation right mm-hmm. here where people need it? So I think, and, and maybe it was even when we talked, because we talked in 2013, I think it was, when you were doing this mm-hmm. and about things, and I talked to someone else about it later. And you said some of this stuff, like controlling a wheelchair, is 10, 20 years in the future. So maybe someone else told me that. Yeah. But... And I still feel that way. Controlling
3: a wheelchair actively with your mind, we can't do it. With this smart wheelchair where you're telling it, I want to go to the bathroom, and it gets you there, that's doable today if you've got the right system.
0: But So that's an an important part of what you're doing, though, is you realize what the technology can and can't do. Mm -hmm. Oh, it can't do X, but we can solve that problem in another way. Yeah. And so you solve that problem with a different kind of language and instructions. We're coming
3: to realize that the amount of stuff we can get from these EEG systems that I'm using, the amount of information, Mm -hmm. is quite low. And that's why the speed is low and the accuracy is not too great. But if we combine that with some really smart things, like these
0: robotics that
3: they're working on at University Park, then we can really achieve something great with that.
0: Now, I'm thinking about how like, I, I typed in the address to get here, even though I've driven to... Hershey Medical Center dozens of times. I still have to put it into my GPS. Um, but when I use Google or any other program on, on my computer, it'll say, oh, it'll kind of use cookies or whatever to figure out what I actually want. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of reading my mind as I type in two letters. Is this technology in the future going to be able to read your mind in terms of being predictive of past searches and things like that? It's also a good
3: question. I thought about oh, this. Um, <laughs> it, there's an easy answer to that in terms of spelling with that, that right. spelling interface, of course, you can use a predictive speller with that. And I use that now in some of my work mm-hmm. where I mean, they're they typing the letter M true. and it's giving you 10 options. And mm-hmm. uh, on the screen, you've got numbers 1 through 10. So if you want to autofill that, you just – the next letter you choose would be – or the next number you choose would be 1 through 10 to say I want to choose this word. A predictive spelling system just like
0: is on there. Like when I typed t- a text message and I typed the letter A – one of the three or four things that comes up is Andrew, mm-hmm. and most of the time, not talking about you. But, you right. know, I'm usually posting something <laughs> on And my there's side. systems that would have to learn your quirks, right, uh-huh. as well, what you
3: want to type and what you don't, which all cell phones employ nowadays. Right. So the technology is there to make these things faster. It's just implementing mm-hmm. them in practice, I think.
0: So, um, so these are things that... You know, the future is now in terms of what it's is exciting, possible. yeah. And so, Debbie, this is the kind of stuff that you guys were involved in. What, what was it like seeing that that cap on Dave's head? Was it like, what the heck's going on? It
1: looked pretty funny. He mm-hmm. thought it was cool. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, <laughs> he was very yeah. proud of it. Yeah. yeah. Did did it was it good to you guys like you seeing it and being like, wow, he's a he's part of what the future is going to be.
1: Yeah, and then he actually did, you know, get the cursor to move it helped Uh, that he was very
3: good at at both of the things we were doing so it's not a it's not a foolproof thing sometimes some people can't operate these but he did very well with both of them and he had a
0: blast with it i think um do you think that dave had been using some assistive technology before then um the ipad obviously um so he was not unfamiliar with technology so his familiar familiarity with technology help out with that yeah i think it does Mm -hmm. Uh, and in that most the people who take my
3: study are at least comfortable with technology or they probably wouldn't sign up for my study at all Yeah, a good um, and I'd like to change that I'd like to get more people in the study make it easier for them to kind of wrap their heads around this weird thing I'm going to be putting on them but, um,
1: but a lot of it was just being able to concentrate mm-hmm. on like you said squeezing your left hand even though you didn't
3: have to squeeze it just right. concentrate it's not a natural that. action that we practice in the day, our like day-to-day focusing lives on that, yeah so in terms of, you know, the technology, getting pe- his interest level, it was very high. And that was obvious from when he came in to when he was done with the study. But
0: um, Now, uh, speaking of interest level, though, um, when it comes down to funding and moving forward on research, we don't have to talk about numbers here, but do you think that when people see this, and Donna, you might have a good perspective on that, see the potential of what brain-computer interface can do, what just general technology mm-hmm. is happening... Do you think that encourages other people to invest their time and effort into doing more? Because, I mean, Debbie, you were raising money for the walk for years. And when you tell someone, oh, we need money for a drug, it's so nebulous, say, buy research. You know, you can't go buy $100 worth of research. But this is something tangible that you can show. This is working. This is a thing.
2: Absolutely. I think this is something that a lot of people would be interested in. They're always looking for what can either help or, um, you know, put an end to this disease. So I think this is something that a lot of people would be interested in. And um, they could, uh, you know, depending on what comes about, they they could direct their their gift to something like that.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. So, you yeah. Get... And from the research perspective, the, 10 years ago, there was maybe one group doing this type of work in patient populations. And three years ago, I joined that group. And nowadays, a lot of people are doing this type of research focused on the
0: people who need the technology and not just to show it's possible. Mm-hmm. And you're still a young guy. I mean, you're younger than me, <laughs> I presume. I'm 35. Yeah. And I mean, and I, and I don't feel that old, even though I feel older now lots of reasons. Um, but you have, a, you have years of potential to do a lot with the knowledge you have. So, you know, we're talking about 10, 20, 30 years in the future. You could be part of that.
3: Yeah, I can't even probably imagine what we'll be doing in 30 years in the future.
0: Well, you've imagined a lot from the start. <laughs> and and you were talking about the speed of these devices, the speed mm-hmm. of usability, um, That, and you were talking about how it started like in the 1980s in terms of, not this device, but in terms of the it. concept yeah. of it. So the speed of computer, like my... Phone here is able to do things that computers five years ago wouldn't do.
3: Yeah. That's not the limitation at this point. The computers have far surpassed the, the problem we have is the amount of stuff we can get from the brain signal. So if I were to drill a hole in your head and stick some electrodes in there, we can get a lot more information than I can record from when I stick an electrode on your scalp. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of filtering that goes on there. There's a lot of blurring of all the information. And so we're kind of limited by that technology. Now, if we see research move in the direction of people opting for long-term communication solutions and that they get something small implanted into their brain to be able to communicate, I could see that being a potential future direction Mm -hmm. for it. Because in that way, we'll kind of surpassed this limitation of the barrier of, you know, the amount of information where we can extract
0: from the brain signal. But either way, the technology that exists in the 1980s and what it's out now, the just it's just exponential what it's possible. So, yeah, yeah. so the, the possibilities are only upward. I mean, mm-hmm. We're not going right. to get slower probably. Right. And there's a chance, I guess, you know. there's always sounds like Armageddon outside, but I think that there's a good chance that we could just improve in ways we can't figure out now. Sure. Um, so, Debbie, is that something you're excited about? That
1: yeah, because a lasting impression here. Communication is so important with this disease. It doesn't affect your mind. So, as you lose the use of your limbs and your your speech, you you have to be able to communicate because everything's still in there, you know. And you're thinking, and you know, you you have to have some means to com- communicate with people. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and you know, I, you were talking about with. Dave's devices, it was hard to get emotion out of it, or, you know, it was all kind of the same tone. I, I'm guessing that with this potential in the future, you'll be able to understand emotion and tone better than you can now with certain devices. It's, it's possible. Right. We're not, get, you're, you're not on and the record saying it's, it's possible. <laughs> We're not,
3: we're not at the point of reading a motion yet, although some people try to say they can do it, but I, I highly doubt that at this point.
0: Well, maybe if they can, it was because they know that person well enough. You know, that's. I'm, I'm referring
3: to one thing specifically. Okay. There are devices on the market nowadays which they sell these EEG headsets, which supposedly can read your emotions, and they're oh. intended to, you know, for you to interact with your environment in certain ways. All they're really doing is detecting whether you're frowning your forehead or, or smiling, mm-hmm. and they can detect all these muscle changes. So, as far as reading these emotion areas of your brain, mm-hmm. that's still yet to be demonstrated i think still have to be able to
2: move (laughs) that's out there
0: either way though we could be improving the wide variety of how you communicate with this sure we're gonna get there i think and then working with the clinic team you're gonna be able to figure out like well what should we talk about like how should we communicate how should you know on both ends you know people with als have these kind of issues. how can we use this device to alleviate that problem and vice versa This, this communication device has where this device has these problems, mm-hmm. how can we use the ALS population to do it? And and then also, ALS isn't the only group of people that it would benefit. No, There's a lot of groups that this could benefit in a lot of ways, right? Right.
3: Anyone who's in need of some sort of augmentative communication tool where they could supplement something they're already using or replace speech. Um, anyone with a, you know, stroke or uh, quadriplegia or anything like that.
0: And I think that's important when we talk about ALS is that you know, we our chapters helped twelve hundred people with ALS in the last year, but there are thousands and tens of thousands of people that have issues like this. Where we'll say your donor, your donations are helping not just people with ALS, but a large number of people with these issues. That often Absolutely. helps you, right, Donna?
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I also wanted to point out that, um, you know, we were talking about people who. Um, are more in tune like Dave was to assistive technology. Lots of times people may think they're in that, you know, genre, but if they speak with Elisa Brownlee, she kind of can get them more comfortable with it. And, you know, it it helps people to communicate a little bit better. And she has so many stories about people that she's helped because she was able to ease them into the assistive technology because um, even though the disease affects you know, 40 to 70, there are still older people and still in that um, maybe like 65 to 70 age bracket who may be afraid of technology, there is a way to kind of ease them into it and teach them how to do it. So I think it's important to just remember that with all this stuff going on and the improvements to make that people all ages can use it. It just may take a little bit more time for some to do that.
0: Well, and no matter the age, it takes kind of a little bit of convincing to get something drilled into your head if that's part of the. BCI, right? <laughs> <laughs> like I'm like, all for it, but I don't need to get a hole in my head. Right. Yet. That's what most people say. Yeah. yeah, but I think now that you know we we're put it that they <laughs> put, we'll put a hole wherever. <laughs> it yeah. But you know, as people just become more comfortable with technology being so immersed in, in their lives, I'm rarely five feet away from my cell phone, which annoys my wife. Um, but. Um, you know, people are using their iPad, which is a communication device people with ALS are using, it'll probably be easier and easier to get people acclimated to this kind of equipment.
3: Right, and they'll see it more, I think, in the future, and it'll be kind of more commonplace. Dr. Simmons, who's the head neurologist here, um, he's uh, very excited about this, and he wants to make this type of technology more present, so give it greater focus in the clinic as a real opportunity for people not only to partake in research but down the line as a real
0: take-home communication tool if they need it well the future of technology and ALS care is happening here at Hershey Medical Center and uh, before we finish that future is happening because of the work that Dave did which we're going to be honoring here today you'll be able to see the pictures on social media after this but um so, Debbie, what's that like knowing that Dave is leaving a lasting impression that's going to be helping not just people with ALS, but we're talking about tens of thousands of people that will benefit from that?
1: Yeah, this is something that he would have he wanted to do, mm-hmm. you know, try to help other people um, that have the disease. And I um, just want to say thank you to the ALS Association and the Hershey Clinic here for all that they have done for us.
0: Well, we're thankful to you and to Dave and the whole family for sharing him with us, obviously sharing his willingness to participate in this kind of work that is very clearly going to help people communicate, help people literally move, as we discussed earlier. So yeah. um, so thank you to everyone for sharing your expertise, um, and uh, especially thank you to the Dave ID e. Tribute Fund, which we're going to be honoring today. Yes. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Andrew.
0: Learn more at ALSPhiladelphia.org. You can get involved in a Walk to Defeat ALS, as Dave Eidey did every year at www.gpcwalktodefeatals.org. And, of course, follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, and everything else, all at ALS Philadelphia. Your donations are helping benefit things like this. And also, I don't want to forget that... um, if you want to learn more about tribute funds and name funds and, and other kind of giving like that, please email Donna Cleary, Donna at ALS And I think she'll be able to help you out. So thank you again for listening and find us more on iTunes today.